So when I came to New Jersey, I was working for a Child Evangelism Fellowship, and, and my boss, he, he was a great guy. But there was one day he brought me into a, a discipline he had every single morning. So at some point in his life, I don't know when he decided to do this, but he researched the average lifespan of the adult male in the United States. And what he did is, from that day, he just counted down to that day. Not as some weird, mystical, prophetic, I'm going to die at this point, but he did that as a daily reminder that one day he would no longer be here. And he found that it helped him live life now with eternity in mind. How often do you think about the day you will die? I think it's natural as you get older to think of that day, but especially today, there are so many distractions, it's easy to push off the end until it comes. We have so much to distract us every second of the day. The, the attention span of a person today is like eight seconds. We're so distracted and it's so easy to forget we're not going to be here one day. What I want to do is I want to open God's word, look at what it has to say, and what I ultimately want you to do is live now in light of the end. That's what those who end well do. So, before we do anything, we're going to pray. And I want you to know I am very excited because I know God the Holy Spirit is powerful. And when He's working and we are intent on obeying It is exciting to think of the possibilities that can happen in your heart, in your marriage, in your family, with your friends, in school, at work. I am so excited at your potential and at what the Holy Spirit could do in you. So let us go to God in prayer. And and this is what I'm praying for you this morning. This is Colossians 2, uh, verses 2 to 3. And this is what Paul was saying he wanted for these local churches. He said, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So that is what I'm praying for you this morning. So let's close our eyes and let's go before the God of the universe. God, I know every single person here is... They have a life that is full of joy but crushing disappointment and pain and struggles. It is hard to follow you, God, and I I pray this morning that you will be worshipped, that we will be encouraged by your word, that we will be joined together in love. And I, I pray, God, that every single person here, when they come to the end of their life, that they will end well. 
God, I pray you'll take away all distractions now and I pray work through your word that is alive and active. Supernaturally work, God, I thank you. Do something in the heart of every single person now, this week as they walk out these doors. I pray, please be working. I pray these things, Lord, in your name. You want our spiritual growth more than we want it. Jesus, I pray this in your name. Amen. So we're doing something a little bit different today. No verses on the screen. So what I'm going to have you do is grab your Bible, grab your phone, iPad, uh, stone tablet, whatever you use, and, and open it to Colossians 3. And if you don't have any of those things... Go look in the Bible at the person next to you. So we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. So this is where we were last week. And we talked about how Paul is writing to a local church. And chapter 3 is all about this is what it looks like to be a Christian. And if you, if you remember last week we talked about ending well, standing before Jesus. And we talked about the identity of those who end well. The identity of those who end well, they are dead They are risen and they are hidden. And we see that in the first four verses. But what we're going to look at this morning is the work of those who end well. And in verses 1 through 4, we see the first thing, the work of those who end well, they seek. So let's read these four verses together. In chapter 3 of Colossians of the true word of God. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So we're just going to look at those first four verses just for a couple of moments. So we see here the work of those who end well is to seek. So this whole idea of seeking in things above, that is the core part of these four verses and the core part of this entire chapter because the rest of the chapter is explaining what it looks like to seek. But let's explain this whole seeking and setting thing. I want to jump in verse 2 first, because it helps us, I think, understand it better, and then we'll jump to verse 1. So in verse 2 it says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So we're setting our minds, which means we are focusing, we are intent on this. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. What is earthly things? Think about it. Think of everything here on earth. Earthly things are temporary. And the world is obsessed with what is temporary. You might be obsessed with what is temporary. Think about it. Money, your job, your career, your retirement, your grades, your home, everything one day completely burned up. Temporary. The world is obsessed with these things. 
Our lives are often centered around what is temporary on these earthly things. But what Paul is saying, set your minds not on earthly things. The opposite of temporary is permanent, eternal. So we are focusing on what matters forever. Alright, so that kind of unlocks a piece of the puzzle, but still doesn't entirely answer the question, what are we thinking? What are, what is above? Look at verse 1. Seek the things above. The word seek means you desire it, you're passionate about it, it's what drives you, it's what you are living for. Seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Where is Christ on his throne? Heaven. So Christian, our lives are not driven by the temporary. Our lives are not driven and focused on what will burn up one day, which is basically everything. We are living for what matters forever, heaven. Heaven is your home. Stop and soak that in. Things are hard here. So much loss, disappointment, unfulfilled dreams. It's hard. I know some of your stories and what you've been through. You know how hard life is more than I at this point. It is hard. But these four verses remind us this is not our home. Where one day there will be no loss, no death, no saying goodbye to those who know Jesus. Heaven is your home. Now let's let's talk about this practically. What does it actually look like to seek the things above? I was thinking of this. So my sister Anne, she's my oldest sister. I'm the second oldest. So my sister Anne is planning on going to Japan to be a preschool ESL teacher. COVID threw a wrench in those plans, but she's planning on making Japan her home. So right now what she is focused on is living out what life will be like when she's in Japan. So she's focused on figuring out what's their culture like. She's figuring out what do they value in Japan. She's watching their TV. She's eating as much of their food as she can. She's intent on living out what life will be like when she is in Japan. So to seek the things above, to set your minds on not what is earthly, means you're consumed with living like heaven is your home now. That means here you're living for what God cares about, not what the world cares about. It means you're living for what will matter when you stand before Jesus. All the earthly things, all the things that will burn up, that's not going to matter when you stand before Jesus who is on the throne and who will judge every single person one day. 1 Peter 2.11 Peter writes... And kind of gets this idea of cross, of heaven being our home. This isn't our home. Peter writes, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles. And what he does is, he he says, live like this. If you are a Christian, you're a stranger. This is not your home. 
Here's kind of two silly, simple examples I thought of. But I think it communicates the example. Imagine you Airbnb a condo. And you're there for the week and the homeowners association fees go up. And you panic and you get angry and you're totally distracted. That would be silly because you don't live there. Why are you getting worked up over something that doesn't really affect you? Or, or think of this. Let's say you uh, Airbnb or a condo and you become so enamored with it, you totally renovate the place, even though it's not yours. Aside from the fact that you'll get in trouble, you're there for a week, but you bring the contractors in and they redo the kitchen just like you like it. You know, you get the king size bed to, to fit in the room. You become so worked up, so enamored um, with this place that you're at for a week. Silly. But it's what it's like when you become so worked up and enamored over earthly things that will one day burn up. Think about your own life. How many times do you, do you just center your life around something that in a week won't matter, two years won't matter, and when you stand before Jesus, won't matter? I get so worked up about school but when I know that when I stand before Jesus, my degree won't matter anything. And what's so silly about it is you have something so much better waiting for you. Why are you living for what will burn up when something is so much better waiting? And when I think of people who lived like heaven was their home, I think of my wife Allison's, one of the heroes of her faith, her Aunt V. She died when she was 85, very suddenly and unexpectedly. I, I wish you could be there at that funeral. Over 200 people, every single person could point at Aunt V and say, my life was affected because she loved Jesus and she loved me. Aunt V started a, a camp for people to come and have fun and hear about God. And that's where people were converted. That's where people fought their sin. That's where people were convicted, where they were encouraged. Over 200 people at this funeral saying, I thank God because she sought what was above, even though she was scared a lot of the time to do what God told her to do. She was so faithful that when her daughter brought her new boyfriend home around the dinner table, she shared the gospel and he was converted right there with the family around. She is someone, when I think of seeking the things above, living like heaven is her home, I think of her and I think of her worshiping Jesus now. That's the way we should be living. And when I was at that funeral, all I could think about is when I die and when I come to the end, and that could come at any moment, what am I going to be known for? What am I living for now? Is what I'm doing now even going to matter a week from today? Like, think about that. Are you living for what is earthly, for what is temporary, for what is going to burn up now? Or are you living like heaven is your home, living for what God cares about? What do you live for? What is your life centered on? Now here is the cool thing. Christian, you don't have to quit your job and join the ministry to do what matters. 
Christians can take what is temporary and use them for what lasts forever. Your job doesn't have to be meaningless if you take that money and use it to get the gospel out. If you are intentional with your relationships and pray and seek to share Jesus with them. Your relationships aren't meaningless. They can be used to grow your love for God or grow their love for God. Even little things like steak, thank God, can mean really big things when not only are you thankful for the steak, but you're thankful for the good God who gave that. The Christian who is seeking what is above uses the temporary for what will matter forever. That is amazing. Everyone wants to make a difference. Everyone wants to make a difference that lasts forever. Christian, you get to by living your life and seeking the things above. If you are intent on doing what Paul says here in these four verses and what we'll see next, you can make a difference like Aunt V. Like Paul. Like so many of the heroes of the faith. Seek the things above. So before we move on, the work of those who end well, they seek. They are intent like heaven is their home. What do you center your life on? Let's go to verses 5 through 11. This is what Paul writes. In these next two sections, this is practically how we seek the things above. These are two practical ways. So this is Paul writing, Therefore put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. And you once walked in these things when you were living in them, but now put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator in Christ. There is not Greek and Jew, circumcision, uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. So the first blank is the the work of those who end well, uh, put sin to death. Put sin to death. I want you to know that as we talk about killing sin and as we talk about the destruction of sin I am familiar with all those things. I'm familiar with them all too well. I am all too familiar of the war that happens in your soul when you're trying to follow God. I know how hopeless fighting sin can feel. When I read this, I want you to know you're not alone. Can I be really honest with you guys? When I was about 16, in my own sinfulness and rebellion, I got caught up in pornography. 
for several years. It waged a horrible war in my soul. So when I talk about sin killing you, I know what it feels like. When I talk about the pain that comes from trying to kill your sin, I know it. It hurts and it kills. You are not alone. And as I was thinking and praying and reading through this passage, I kept thinking, what would Connor need to hear eight years ago when I was struggling? If if I was in that pew... What would you need to hear when you come in Sunday morning feeling defeated because sin just kills your soul? What Paul writes here isn't just words. It brings good hope that, Christian, you can kill sin and you can keep it killed. Look at verse 5. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Paul uses three words to talk about getting rid of sin. He says, put to death in verse 5. In verse 8, he says, put away. And then verse 9, he says, put off. I want you to see this. There is no passiveness when it comes to killing sin. There's no twiddling your thumbs... I think I'll get to it today. There is no passiveness when it comes to killing sin. You are putting something to death. Now he says, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. So that is your temporary sinful nature. Put it to death. You put something to death when you hate it. Every spider I see, I put it to death. Not because I love spiders, because I hate them. Hate your sin because it is rebellion and worship of something other than God. Christian, do you hate your sin? I did not ask, do you hate yourself? Do you hate your sin? Do you hate your earthly nature? Do you want to put it to death? Now, Paul here says, put to death and all these things about you were living in them and old self and new self. And remember last week we talked about at conversion, you are dead to sin. You are no longer dead in that you're alive in Christ and at the same time you're dying to sin. So what Paul here is talking about, hey, you're no longer powerless to sin. You're alive in Christ. You have a relationship with God. But now it's time to get busy and start putting that sinful, temporary nature to death. In the Christian life, there is a tension between redeemed and depraved. There's a war being waged in your soul between the Holy Spirit and that earthly, temporary part. Do you feel the tension? Because you should. Every single morning you should feel that that tension and that pool of redeemed and depraved. I love the strong language that Paul uses there. Verse 5, put to death. That means you're going for the roots. You are fighting those sinful desires with passion and intent and seriousness. Because you love God, you hate your sin, and you're thinking of the end when you will stand before Jesus. I love what John Owen, an old 
dead Puritan writer said. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And that is exactly what sin does. You do not lose your salvation, but it kills your soul. When I'm wrapped up in sin that I am not killing, it kills my ministry. It kills my relationship with God. It kills my relationship with others. Sin is deadly. Look at verses uh, 5 and then we'll jump to 8 and to 9 just to real quickly look at the sins. We won't look at them a lot because they're self-explanatory. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. When we think of idolatry, we think of like Raiders in the Lost Ark with that little gold Buddha dude that he takes. No, idolatry is what's going on in the heart. Greed is idolatry. Verse 8, put away all of the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, filthy language from your mouth. Verse 9, do not lie to one another. Look at that list. Which one of those do you struggle with? Which one have you been hurt by? Let's jump back up to verse 6. Let's feel the seriousness and the weight of sin. Because of these, because of this sin, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. God's wrath burns against sin. Even if you're a Christian, that should terrify you. Just the image of a holy God who created little bitty ants who make anthills. His wrath burning against you, that should terrify you. In Romans 2, we see God will repay every believer for how they lived. Christian, even if you don't do well in putting your sin to death, you you can know you will not lose your salvation and ultimately you will not receive what you deserve, hell. But that will still be a hard day when you stand before Jesus. Abusing the grace of God, taking that for granted, will not be taken lightly even if you are dead, risen, and hidden. Why should we kill our sin? Why should we hate our sin? God hates it. And there are serious, eternal consequences to it. Your sin is not your little sinful habit, secret habit that no one knows about. Your sin isn't your little buddy that you can just keep off to the side and it doesn't really matter. Maybe you'll, you'll deal with it one day. God's wrath burns against sin. And I want us to feel the weight of this because I become blind to this. When we talk about God's wrath, every believer will finally receive what they deserve when they stand before Jesus. And that should break your heart and that should terrify you. That over 3 billion people have never even heard about God's wrath, but also His good grace and mercy. And that He went so far to pursue lost sinners that He took on flesh, became a baby, and died on the cross, rose again so that He could have them in their family. 3 billion people don't know that message. A part of seeking what's above is warning people and pleading people of this. 
What are one of the things that God cares about? God cares about the heart and the soul. This week, I had to preach this to myself. I have a family member I'm trying to connect with far from God. My prayer was actually that maybe they would check in. I don't know, but God can do anything. I was so scared to talk to this person I haven't talked to in over a decade. And when I had that phone number in my phone, I just wanted to put my phone away. I didn't want to do it. I was scared, but I kept thinking about what God cares about and what matters for eternity. That if I really loved this person, I got to try to build a relationship and warn him. Because God's wrath is real and it's serious. I don't evangelize and witness to people when I forget about that. Look at verses 7 to 9. You once walked in these things when you were living in them, but now put away all of the following. Here's the good news. If you are a Christian, this isn't your identity. You're not powerless to your sin, so don't live like it. And I find this comforting, where Paul's saying, hey, this isn't your identity Stop living like it. Because it means he and God knows your sinful nature lingers like a bad cough. God knows. Do you feel alone and like God doesn't understand you or he doesn't understand your struggles? Or he's up there exasperated, confused at how this person could keep sinning? God is aware that it takes time to kill sin. God understands. God is patient. He is rich in mercy and grace. He is wrathful. More wrathful than we could realize, but He is also more merciful and loving and gracious than we can realize. So Christian, don't feel alone. Not only does God understand, but probably most Christians around you, most Christians here probably realize the heartache that comes when you put your sin to death. It is hard work. So these few verses, Paul is saying, here's sin, God hates it. This isn't your identity. You're not powerless to sin. Put it to death. Hate your sin. Feel the tension in the pool of depraved and redeemed. But let's talk practically. What does this mean? When I was struggling in my sin... Here's, here's kind of what I found out. If you don't love God more than your sin, your rules and boundaries and blockers don't matter much. Because what's going to happen in the moment of temptation, if you still love your sin more than God, you will push through everything to get at what your heart really wants. Allison and I, when we're in conflict, we have this rule. Allison is better at keeping it than me. But we have this rule. Hey, if things are getting a little too heated, let us separate, calm down for a little bit, and then we'll come back together. But when I love my ego and my pride, and when I love being right more, I don't care about the rule. I'm going to walk into the room that she's in, and I'm going to keep arguing, hoping that she'll admit I'm right. Why? Because in that moment, I don't love Allison most, I don't love God most, I love me and my sin and my depravity. If you don't love God more than your sin... I really don't think there is much hope in putting your sin to death in a way that honors God. There's no way. You're getting at the roots and pulling it out. I think of Connor 
eight years ago. Listening to messages, listening to so many sermons talk about putting sin to death. And I remember feeling this hopeless weight of I've tried almost all of these steps, but wh- where is my sin going to be killed? When is that going to happen? What I didn't see is first and foremost, I have to work hard at cultivating my relationship with God. My affections have to be supernaturally changed for me to love God more than my sin and be intent and passionate about putting my sin to death. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in the next passage. But by God's grace, I was able to have freedom from my sin when I was willing to do whatever to get more of the God I loved. That was the key. When you love and fear God, you will do whatever you have to to kill your sin. Get a counselor. Get a flip phone. Get help. Drive a different way home. Break up with that person. When you love and fear God, when you are seeking the things above, it doesn't matter what you have to do. You will do it. You don't want anything standing in your way between God and your heart. And we'll talk about more of this Lord willing, in in a couple of minutes. But here are just a couple of things that I found as I was working on cultivating my heart for God. I had to honestly pray for help and pray that God would help me desire Him and hate sin. Like the the psalm writer in Psalm 42, I believe, where he says, um, I, I yearn for thee like a deer pants for water. That's the kind of prayer we need. God, help me to want you so much. I had to soak in God's word. I needed to keep a running tab of confession with God. Just keep it going. And I I needed people to come around me and help me love God. Because sin loves darkness. Sin loves secrecy. Can I be honest with you again about what scares me the most? Hebrews 2.1 talks about this. This is what the writer says. For this reason we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. I am at this point not super scared about like this big downfall in my life due to sin. What scares me most is the slow drifting into sin. That in 20 years... Slowly my affections were taken from God onto something else and I eventually become unbothered, passive, and blind to my own sin. That's what terrifies me, is a slow drifting. One of the criticisms thrown against Christianity is that it's like a a crutch for weak people just to get through life a little bit easier and a little bit better. One of the reasons, friend, that that's not true is we see here believers die to themselves and that is grueling and painful work that doesn't stop until you see Jesus. Christianity is not for the the weak just looking for an easy way through life. It is those who love God and are intent on following Him no matter what it takes. But Christian, I want you to see fighting sin is hard, but it's so worth it. And I am excited for my own heart and for your heart. 
Because what would happen in your homes, your workplace, your friend groups, your school, if you were set on living so counterculturally that you kept killing your sin, kept confessing it, kept being honest about it? How many more people would your Christian witness impact if your affections were fully set on God and what is waiting for you one day? And you want to see something really cool? Right here in the text. Jump down to verse 10. This is Paul writing. In the second part of verse 10, you are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator. You are being renewed. It's a slow process and God knows. He's not going to give up on you today just because you did not put your sin to death. I thank God whenever whenever I think about my struggles with sin. I thank God for His deliverance of me and His hand on me not letting me go. Because if He did, I would not be standing here today. Now, here's the thing that really excites me. Look in verse 5. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Do you know what that means? Your sinful nature is temporary. If you have believed in Jesus, that sinful nature, this sin, this hard work, one day, all of that gone. The hard, grueling work of putting your sin to death not always going to be the case. One day, completely gone, new, redeemed, renewed, in the image of a creator, new body, standing with Jesus and other saints, praising Him forever. It's so easy to feel the hard work and the hopelessness of sin, but hold on to this. Just like the pews in this church, just like this building, your sinful nature is temporary. Just like those stockings you bought at Dollar Tree that are going to become broke in two days, your sinful nature is temporary. So what we're going to do is, is, I've never bought stockings from Dollar Tree, but that was the first thing that came to mind. (laughs) That is not one of the sins I have to put to death. Alright, we're going to go to verse 12. But what we're going to do... I just real quick want you to see this. This next section is incredibly exciting because here's what it means. It means that the Christian life is about so much more than killing sin. The Christian life is about embracing how God meant things to be and how things will be one day. Yes, there's pain in the Christian life as you suffer and as you put your sin to death. But there is great joy as we imperfectly seek to live out what things will perfectly be like in heaven. Christian, don't be weighed down. The Christian life is so much more than just killing sin. It's about embracing how God meant things to be. And as you imperfectly follow God, you can have little pictures of what heaven will be like forever. That's exciting. Look there in verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, if anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. 
Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ, to which you are also called in one body, rule your hearts. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So this is putting on the fruit. So, Paul doesn't specifically talk about fruit of the Spirit. Paul wrote the book of Galatians and he wrote about the fruit of the Spirit. But we see here, there's elements of the fruit of the Spirit and we see practically what happens when you have the fruit of the Spirit working in you. Like this section right here is what happens when you are filled with the results of the Holy Spirit working in your life. Look at verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen ones. Ephesians 1 talks about how before the world was created, God chose you to be a part of His family. And that means even when you do not kill your sin well, your salvation is not a mistake. Don't create in your mind a false God who hates you and pushes you away when you sin. When you sin, think of God choosing you and dearly loving you. Think of the prodigal son and the lost sheep. God welcomed the one who was far from him coming back. God went after and chased after the sheep who was far from God. Don't create a false God. Remember, God chose you if you have believed in him. He loves you dearly. Let's look at the rest of verse 12. Put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We look at the example of Jesus to be able to do this. First, this is only the work of the Holy Spirit that can produce these things, but as we're practically working to fight sin, look to the example of Jesus, because Jesus was all of those things. Jesus humbly came here. Jesus is our gentle, good shepherd. Jesus showed compassion and kindness when he went on the cross to die so that you could be saved. All of these things we see in the perfect example of Jesus. Our obedience is rooted in Jesus, his character and his example. Look at verse 13. We're just going to work through these Bearing with one another, being patient with one another, forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. We might as well, I'm not saying cross out God's word, but in our minds, we might as well cross out if anyone has a grievance against another. We can just say when anyone has a grievance against another. You live in a broken world. You are a sinful person. People around you are sinful. You're going to have issues with people, right? You probably came here today thinking about an issue you have with someone else. But Christian, seeking the things above means you live counterculturally. There's lots of talk about toxic people today. Well, if they're toxic to you, if they're not 
for you, if they really frustrate you, cut them out. You don't need them in your life. But if you want to talk about toxic people, friend, you're toxic to God. In your relationship with Him. When you're talking about toxic people, you consistently disobey. You consistently put other things before Him. You're consistently stubborn. Yet He came to seek and to save you. He is the root of forgiving and there's no excuses. There is a time and place, yes, for cutting people out of your life. But that is, those examples are few and far between. This is the, the, what the daughter of a policeman who was killed in action said about the man who killed her father. I think this is a perfect example of forgiveness. There has been anger, sadness, grief, and confusion, she said. And part of me wishes that I could despise the man who did this to my father. But I can't get any part of my heart to hate him. All that I can find is myself hoping and praying for this man to truly know Jesus. When I heard the news that he was in stable condition, the the man who killed her father, part of me was relieved. My prayer is that someday down the road I get to spend some time with the man who shot my father. Not to scream, not to yell, not to scold, but simply to tell him about Jesus. If she can love someone like that, who by all means, most people would slam the cut them out of my life, they're toxic button. She just wants to love and pursue, help them know and love Jesus. Forgive those who you have issues with. Pursue a relationship with them. Don't fall for the sick pleasures of bitterness and making someone out to be a villain. When it comes to forgiving, you don't got to publicize it. Sometimes you do, but you don't always have to bring other people into it. But what you do have to do is pray. Give up your pride. Sometimes you just have to have a normal conversation with them and realize they're not horrible villains from a Disney movie. And even if they are like this man who killed her father, forgive because Christ has forgiven you and by all means, you are sinful and you have done far worse to God than anyone could do to you. And I am excited about this because this is hard. But this kind of forgiveness shows the mercy and beauty of Jesus so much to an angry world. Cutting people out usually doesn't communicate the gospel. But forgiving and loving those who hurt you does. It commutes the gospel in a powerful way that sometimes communicates the gospel better than words ever could. So those who seek They forgive. Verse 14, above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Love is wanting what's best for a person, even if it's difficult or involves sacrifices for you or the other person. And Jesus is at the root of this because he did what was best for you, even though it took sacrifice, his own life. Do you actually love the people around you? So much you're willing to do whatever is best for them? I want to talk real quickly about this. It's not loving to just look the other way when someone is on the way to hell or when a believer is stuck in sin. Sometimes we can justify. I don't want to make our relationship difficult. 
They got it on their own. I'm just going to look the other way. I'm going to be submissive and, and not say anything. But if you actually... It's not, that's not submission. That's not obedience. That's selfishness and, and cowardly behavior. Warn and plead. Those who are in clear violation of God's word and those who are far from Him. When it comes to me, don't look the other way. If you see me in sin, don't look the other way and say it's love. Look at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts. So what Paul here is talking about is peace that has been made between you and God. At the moment of conversion, you were brought into God's family. Peace was made between you and God and that peace needs to rule your hearts and needs to be present when God's people are together. Here's what that means. Christians don't sweep things under the rug. You either let it go or you deal with it. But Christians are constantly seeking reconciliation and right relationship with not only people in their church, but people in their homes, in their families, at their work, at their school, with their friends. If Christ and His peace rule you, this pursuit will mark every single relationship. Paul says, be thankful. There is so much outrage today. Everywhere. And there's kind of a sick sweetness at outrage. Because when you're outraged, you're right, they're wrong. That feels good, but it's a sick good feeling. It's a wrong sick feeling. And it is addicting. I'm right, they're wrong. Here's why. Here's something else I can be right about. There's so much outrage. But think about what a witness it would be if you are seeking the things above. You are looking at what Christ cares about and you are a thankful person. How much does that communicate the gospel? Verses 16 Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. This is how you cultivate a heart for God. You want to know really how to kill your sin? Pray and start doing this. Letting the Word of God dwell richly in you. Get connected with believers that you can worship with. You can teach each other and help each other out. I think of... um, We have a missionary at our church back in Pennsylvania, uh, Veronica, and she works for uh, Joni and Friends, and they go out to places around the world, and they give wheelchairs to people who are disabled. So God supernaturally provided a wheelchair to this woman named Lilia. And when she got the wheelchair, she said, Thank God, I can now go worship with other believers. Someone, third world country. That was her first reaction when she got the ability to move and get out of her house. I want to go worship God with other believers. That's the kind of thankfulness, that's the kind of heart that Paul is talking about here. Singing and teaching, letting the word of God dwell richly among you. You know a good way to tell 
If God's word is dwelling in you, ask yourself, what has God been teaching me in his word this week? That's a good way to know if God's word is really dwelling within you. Something I've been trying to do recently is as I have my chunk of time with God in the morning, and because I get so distracted during the day, I'm trying to set an alarm every 30 minutes to an hour. And when that goes off, just a couple minutes, all right, let me pull out the verse, let me pray just for a couple of moments. That is a way to get God's word dwelling richly in you. In verse 17, whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is what it looks like to seek the things above, to live like heaven is your home. Put your sin to death. Put on the fruit of the Spirit. Live so counterculturally that people wonder, what is going on? How can you love and be thankful like that? When I, I think of Connor eight years ago, what is one of the things that has helped me most in seeking the things above is remembering Christ is coming and I will be standing before him one day. Horses, when they're racing, they have these blinders. And that's because they got weird eyes that look all over the place. But what the blinders do is it keeps them focused on what's ahead so they don't freak out and run anywhere else. That's what keeping the end in mind does for you, Christian. Realizing all of this is temporary. Something better is waiting for me. Heaven is my home. That, that is your blinders and that's what keeps you going. Putting on the fruit and putting your sin to death. Realizing I'm going to stand before Jesus one day. So what do you practically need to do to seek the things above? Three real quick things. Set reminders on your phone to pray and read God's word throughout the day so it is dwelling richly among you. You know what's another thing you can do? Come early to church and stay a little bit later so you can get connected to people. Get in a life group. They're starting this week. So you can... Teach and admonish each other. Let the word of God dwell richly among you. Let the end be the blinders that keep you moving forward. Let's pray. God, I thank you. Thank you that something better is waiting for us in heaven. I pray for every Christian here that they will seek the things that are above, that they will love you so much they're willing to do whatever to put their sin to death and put on the fruit. God, I pray for anyone here that does not know you, that they will see your mercy and your wrath and will trust in you. Amen. Well, um, Connor first commented on our short attention span. I wanted to stay in, I wanted to kind of go, what did he say? I thought, I realized that if I was going to do that, you'd have thought I was hard of hearing instead of forgetting what he just said. But I want to encourage you on this. How quickly do the things that are said this morning slide out of our ears, slide out of our thinking, 
slide out of our hearts as we start to walk out the doors and think about what we're going to do for lunch. What are the plans for this afternoon? Do I really want to watch a football game? Do I want to go shopping? What are the plans for this week? How quickly does that stuff start to slip away? Because we start to get distracted with other things. We lose attention. We lose focus. Any of you lose something? Anyone look for keys this morning before they came to church? We're accustomed to seeking. But often our seeking is short term because we find what we want fairly quickly and we go on. But the things that Connor was talking about this morning are things that should be seeking components to become a regular routine of life. There are things we're seeking to put off and things we're seeking to put on. Don't lose sight. Take some time. Put some reminders in your life to remember the things we should remember and to pick up the things we were talking about this morning. Shifting gears, we're going to take an offering, going to come from the back to the front. Just take a moment to put something in, and as the offering plate comes on by, then we invite you to stand with me, stand with us, and worship and celebrate the goodness of our Lord. Let's have a word of prayer together. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your richness to us. Father, thank you for the reminder that we should be seeking you. That there are things that are temporary, things that draw us away from you that we need to be putting off. But rather, Father, we should be letting your spirit work in us, drawing us to you, allowing your spirit to build our passion, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, these wonderful things that help us to know you and to understand you and to embrace you. And Father, what's great is as that cycle begins to happen in our life, Father, it draws us closer and closer to you and lifts us up further and further into your presence. Father, I just ask that you'd be at work in us this morning and be at work in us this week as we seek to apply these principles to our lives. Lord, I ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.